Psalm 66. We read God's Word this morning in Psalm 66. We sang it, we heard it from the call to worship, now we read it and from it preach. Make a joyful noise unto God, all ye lands. Sing forth the honor of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say unto God, how terrible art thou in thy works. Through the greatness of thy power shall thine enemies submit themselves unto thee. All the earth shall worship thee and shall sing unto thee. They shall sing to thy name. Come and see the works of God. He is terrible in his doing toward the children of men. He turned the sea into dry land. They went through the flood on foot. There did we rejoice in him. He ruleth his, by his power forever. His eyes behold the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. O bless our God, ye people, and make the voice of his praise to be heard which holdeth our soul in life, and suffereth not our feet to be moved. For thou, O God, hast proved us, thou hast tried us as silver is tried. Thou broughtest us into the net, thou laidst affliction upon our loins. Thou hast caused men to ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. But thou broughtest us out into a wealthy place. I will go into thy house with burnt offerings. I will pay thee my vows, which my lips have uttered, and my mouth hath spoken when I was in trouble. I will offer unto thee burnt sacrifices of fatlings. With the incense of rams, I will offer bullocks with goats. Come and hear all ye that fear God. And I will declare what he hath done for my soul. I cried unto him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. But verily God hath heard me. He hath attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, which hath not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy from me. That's the reading of the scripture. The text is in this psalm, verse 16. Come and hear, all ye that fear God, and I will declare what he hath done for my soul. Or, come here, all ye that fear the Lord, while I with grateful heart record what God has done for me. I cried to him in deep distress, and now his wondrous grace I bless, for he has set me free. That's the versification of Psalm 66, verse 16. Come and hear, all ye that fear God, and I will declare what he hath done for my soul. Psalm 66 at the beginning is very familiar, unsurprising, and found throughout the Psalms. Our text 
is unfamiliar and is rarely found in the Psalms. The beginning of the Psalm that I say is familiar is the Psalmist calling the people of God to come, come and see, visualize what God has done for them, that is for us. You have David asking the people of God to come and see what God had done for Israel such that he says his works were terrible. And when he uses that word terrible in verse 3, how terrible are thy, art thou and thy works? And in verse 5, come and see the works of God. He is terrible in his doing toward the children of men. He doesn't mean terrible in the sense of awfully bad, but he means terrible in the sense of awesome. When you see what God has done, you are filled with awe. And then he goes on to say that. So he does, as it were, this motion, come, and I want you in your mind's eye to visualize God reaching down with his hands into the Red Sea and making an opening so that the people who were assembled up against that sea, pressed from behind by the Egyptians, were able to go through on dry land. Can you see that? You visualize what God has done for the church and then keep watching what God did in his awful judgments to the Egyptians when with those same hands he pushed that sea back on them and destroyed them. You can see that, can't you? And then watch how Israel, on its journey to the land of Canaan, you can visualize them wandering in that wilderness, that waste-howling wilderness, and all of the trouble that they went through, men rode over their heads. Read the rest of the psalm, see that. God caused men to ride over their heads. Verse 12, we went through fire as well as through water. Look at all of the trouble that they went through when God, verse 10, proved them and tried them like silver is tried. You can see that, can't you? And then you can also see that God always brought them out into a wealthy place. God is an awesome God. But then you come to our text, and we have something that's very unusual. And what's unusual in the text is that David does not say, now come and see, but come and hear. Because what he is going to say now you can't visualize, you have to think about. And he doesn't say come and listen to what God has done for us. I'm finished with that, David says. Now I want you to come, assemble around me please, and listen to what God has done for me. For me. David, in our text, is giving a personal testimony as to what God had done for his own soul. As soon as I use that word personal testimony, you probably get nervous because you say Reformed people don't do that. We don't give personal testimonies. That's Arminian, that's Baptist, that's Pentecostal. It's certainly not Reformed. It's absolutely not Protestant Reformed. 
And yet, what you need to hear this morning is that David, in this psalm, is giving his own personal testimony as an example for every one of us. So that in addition to us speaking to others about what God has done for us, are also able to say, I want to tell you what God has done for my own soul, my soul, and your soul. So let's hear this word of God this morning under the theme, personal testimony of the saved soul. Personal testimony of the saved soul. First, see what he testifies, then to whom he speaks, and then answer the question at the end, why? Why would David make this testimony, and why would we? So first, personal testimony of what? And the answer is of what God had done for his soul. And secondly, testimony to whom all the God-fears that are around him. Come and hear all ye that fear God. And then third, what's not so explicit but more implicit in the text is why. Because this passage is somewhat unusual, surprising to us, I want to be very careful in explaining what David is not doing here in order that we may see very clearly precisely what he is doing here. Here, David is not saying, come and see what God has done for the church. I said that in the introduction, but I want to make a point of that now because that is something that we ought to be able to speak about. We ought to be able to give testimonies as to what God has done for us. We ought to be able to speak in such a way that others can visualize what God has done for the church. And that's why we teach church history in school and Bible history in catechism and speak of these things in our homes and read of them in good books. We must be the kind of people who are able to say, this is what God has done for us he is an awesome God, and we are going to praise him because of it. But that's not what David is doing here. In the second place, David is not either saying, I want you to hear what God has done for me in my earthly life. Now, David could have done that, did do that at other times. David prospered. David was physically well David had all kinds of material possessions, and for them he thanked God. And so we may follow that example too. God has done so many things for us that we have possessions in abundance. We have health and strength. We have a building in which we may worship. Let's praise God for that, and let's make God's praise glorious for that. But that's not either what he's saying in this text. Nor is David saying, come and I want you to hear what I have done by the grace of God for God's church. That might be permissible, it's probably questionable, but there are many things that David had done by the grace of God for God's church, and we can see that in our lives too. 
I imagine David as an old man might have been tempted when his grandsons gathered around him to say, boys, you know what I did when I was your age? I was taking care of my dad's sheep and along came a bear and I took that bear by the scruff of his neck and I killed that bear with my own hands. And boys, if you think that was something, I did the very same thing with a lion. And if you think that was something, when I had came face to face as a young boy with a giant, with the very first stone that came out of my sling, I killed that giant. And then before I was appointed to be the king and reigned over Israel, I was the one, no one else could do that. I and my soldiers were able to rid Jerusalem of all the Jebusite, Jebusites and inhabit that city. Now I can't imagine that David actually did that because David didn't boast of those kinds of things and there's only one record in the Old Testament that you hear of David speaking of those things. And that's when he proposed to go up against Goliath and Saul said, not you. And David said, I'm not afraid because by the grace of God, I was able with my own hands to kill that bear and that lion. And so I'm not afraid of that big brute. Let me fight him. Otherwise, David wouldn't boast of those things. And though we could speak of all kinds of things we've done, it's not healthy for us to say how many sermons we've preached, how many Bible studies we led, how many terms we served as an elder or deacon in consistory, how often we served on school board, volunteered in the schools, how many times we prayed for our children and with our children. There are all kinds of things we could talk about that we've done by the grace of God for the church of Christ, but we ought not do that. We ought to follow the example of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament who did that once or twice and then did that with greatest embarrassment only because he had to do that to defend his apostleship. But that's not either what David did here. And then in the fourth place, what David did not do is say, I want you to know what I did for my own soul. David was not an Arminian to take a later heresy and impose it back upon him. David was not a synergist to take a doctrinal term that simply means that God and man work together. Their energy synthesizes synergists. David did not say that I did my part because God did his part and together we accomplished the salvation of my soul. David was a Calvinist. He wouldn't have done that. And so now we can see very clearly in our text what David is saying. I want you to know what God and God alone did for my soul. And you can't see that. You have to listen. I need to explain it to you. And so what David did is, I can isolate out four elements of that testimony here. You may find others perhaps in the psalm. But David had this as the theme of his personal testimony. God saved me from my sin and made me his. God saved me from my sin and made me his. And how 
I want to work out that sermon, David says to you, is in four steps. Step number one, I was in trouble. And I get that from the psalm when he says in verse 17 that I cried to him with my mouth. No, that's not the verse. The trouble is in verse 14. My lips uttered a cry and my mouth spoke when I was in trouble. That's point number one of his sermon. Trouble. I was in trouble. Point number two of my sermon. You want to know the nature of my trouble? It was such that I could not deliver myself. There are certain troubles that we get in that we just need to do something to get out of and don't need anyone else's help. That's not this trouble. David said, I was in such trouble that I had to cry for help. I could do nothing. And that comes out at the end of the psalm when in verse 20 he speaks of mercy. From a certain point of view, mercy is the climax of the psalm. It's the very end of it. God did not turn away his mercy from me. Mercy is the act of God that's pity. Mercy is God looking down at someone who is utterly helpless in his misery and feeling for them, and then, because he feels for them, reaches down from his heights and delivers them from that misery. That's point number two. Number one, trouble. Two, trouble out of which I could not deliver myself. Point number three, you want to know what that trouble was? My sin, my iniquity. If I regard iniquity, God will not hear me. That is, if I esteem iniquity as good, if I like sin, if I'm pleased with my unholiness, God will not hear me. David's problem was his sin. David's problem was not a broken leg, was not a fever or cancer. David's problem was not other people's sins. David's problem was his own sin. As I indicated, that's verse 18 where he speaks of iniquity. This is my problem. This is my trouble. I couldn't escape that on my own. There's nothing I could do in order for me to deliver myself from my sin. But God delivered me. And that's the fourth point of his sermon. And he delivered me by a sacrifice of an innocent victim. And there the psalm is full at the middle when he speaks in verse 13, for example, of burnt offerings. And verse 15 of burnt sacrifices and rams, and bullocks, and goats. He's thinking of how God delivered him from his sin and made him his by that burned offering. You can almost imagine in your mind's eye, but here you're not supposed to think in picture, but you can almost imagine that David, if he were permitted, would have shuffled over to the altar and stood by the altar and said to the people around him, you want to know what God has done for me? It's all here, right here. And there's nothing that I esteem more highly in my life than what God did here. And in David's Old Testament abilities, David simply said what God did for me is Christ. 
and it's all Christ. And I am looking forward to the one who's going to come in the future someday to whom all of these sacrifices pointed because Christ is the one who delivered me from my misery about which I could do nothing. And now I fear God, and I want you to know that I'm not my own, but I belong to him, him. And so to transfer that to the New Testament is very easy, isn't it? To ask ourselves what personal testimony we are able to give is straightforward, isn't it? It's simply this. He saved me from my sin by Christ and made me His. That's the theme of our sermon. The very same sermon. The sermon that we're going to speak to others about privately what God did for me. That's what God did for me. And so now you may visualize, perhaps, now not that we are standing by an altar, but that we are thinking about and hanging on to for dear life. Translate that by faith. Embracing by faith the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the working out of that sermon is the very same thing. The very same thing. We are in trouble. We've been in trouble. And that trouble is such that we couldn't do anything to deliver ourselves from it. My trouble is not, first of all, my pain, my cancer, my sorrows, earthly. My trouble is not your sin. My trouble is my sin, mine, my guilt, my iniquity, my shame, my original sin, my actual sin, my sins of commission, my sins of omission. I've sinned against His grace and provoked Him to His face. That's my problem. I broke His covenant. I offended God in every respect, and I cannot deliver myself from that trouble. I can try, but trying to deliver myself is a greater offense to God. But God, in His mercy toward me, says, look at that sacrifice that I provide that you could not, and trust that. And now you say, my cry for help is turned to praise, for he has set me free. Come here, all ye that fear the Lord, while I with grateful heart record what God has done for me. I cried to him in deep distress, and now his wondrous grace I bless, for he has set me free. That's a very good explanation of the doctrine of Psalm 66 verses 16 and following. That's what God has done for us. It's all Christ, the Lamb of God slain for me, Christ for me, Christ in me, Christ with me, Christ is mine. It's all Christ. And so if you wonder how to preach that sermon, not from a pulpit, we'll come to that in a moment, but if you wonder how to explain what God did for you, then just start there. A very simple statement that has Christ at the center. God saved me from sin by Christ and made me His. 
It's all Christ. Christ for me. Just think of some simple prepositions. I'm not going to die because Christ died for me. I'm not going to suffer the wrath of God now or ever, ever, because Christ suffered the wrath of God all for all of my sins. Christ is for me. Christ is in me. The life that I live now, think Galatians 2.20, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I live. I do. And yet not I. It's Christ that lives in me. Christ for me. Christ in me. For, simple preposition. In, simple preposition. With, simple preposition. He's with me. He's my friend. He's my companion. He's my bridegroom. He sticks to me closer than any earthly brother ever would. Closer than a brother my Jesus is to me. This is my story. This is my song. This is my testimony. He saved me from my sin and made me His. Christ is everything to me. Everything. He makes a place for me in God's house. Now that's not a preposition, but now think, think what God has done for you. He gave you membership in the church of Jesus Christ. He says you're not your own. You're not on your own. You're not isolated. I'm bringing you in to a family of faith so that you have ownership here and friendship here and a place here. What, what a great good God we have. He's mine and I'm His. And from a certain point of view, we could go on and on. And from a certain point of view, the text encourages us to go on and on. And that encouragement comes from the word that David uses in our text. I will declare what he has done for my soul. Where that word declare means count every single item. This and that and the next thing and the next. And don't forget any. And when you're finished... So now another dimension of the verb is start over again and keep on declaring, keep on speaking. And so David can say, I want you to know all the details of it. I'm going to explain it very carefully. And part of what I want to explain to you is that what God did for the nation as a whole, allowing enemies to ride over their head, putting them through fire and water, God did for me too. But he always, always brought me out into a wealthy place and in fact it's not that he delivered me from that but that he used that for my good you want to hear my story i could go on and on and on and on he always hears my cry what great things god has done for us Now, when I first made this sermon a few months ago, I did that because one of my grandsons was making confession of faith. And the applications I made focused on confession of faith and catechism. And I want to repeat those applications now for us this morning. The main application is this, that catechism must be designed to enable our young people to articulate 
that. They must not just feel what God has done for them and say, I have good feelings and I'm very happy. They must be able to spell it out and not just in a very simple way, but in a very careful way, just what God has done for them. That's catechism. And so, you children, when you first went to catechism in first grade, the very first question that you were asked is, who is your creator? And you remember the answer you gave? One word, God. God. A very easy. Who's your creator? God. And then the book asked you, did God create all things? And you said, yes. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You're learning, even at six years old, how to put words, to put into words what God has done for you. And any catechism that does not emphasize what God has done for you is catechism that may well be missing the mark. Catechism that begins not just in sixth grade and ends in eighth grade and deals with the very simple gospel in a thumbnail and then maybe with a lot of different issues. All of that is important, but catechism for us needs to begin early and end late because there are so many things we can't even wrap our arms around them all of what God has done for us and because we have bad memories and so easily forget we need to have those things repeated to us recounted for us this is what God did and that's what God did and we go through all of the elements of what God did and then we start over again and that's why in first second and third grade you have all of Bible history fourth and fifth grade all of Bible history sixth and seventh grade all of Bible history until you know Bible history and then you jump into doctrine and those things that you could visualize with your eyes now you have to think about with your mind you can't see them you can't see the doctrine of election you can't see the doctrine of regeneration you can't see total depravity irresistible grace, limited atonement. You have to think, but by the time you get into eighth grade, you need to think about these things. And so you learn all of Reformed doctrine in eighth and ninth grade, and then 10th and 11th grade, you repeat it all from a different perspective, on and on and on, all of the elements. But here's the point. If that catechism is not addressing the hearts of the people of God so that the children learn this sermon that they are able to speak privately. He saved me from my sin and made me his. Then that catechism is missing its mark. And the lead that we ought to take in catechism is the old catechism that we've always used beginning in eighth grade where you are asked this question what is your only comfort in life and death? And you learn to say, not this. Our comfort is that Christ redeemed us. But you learn to say, my 
only comfort in life and death is that I am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood, precious blood, redeemed me. Me. This is personal. Catechism must be personal. This is experiential. Catechism must speak about our experiences that are felt and known. And all of the gospel is summed up in that simple testimony, what God has done for me. He saved me from sin and made me his. Catechism goes on and on, as I said, on and on and on and on. And that's because the Bible says there's so much and there's so much more and when you get to heaven you're going to learn so much more there's never going to be an end of what you can learn of what God has done for you it'll go on and on and on I say that and make that application partly because there is a history of that in the churches where some churches said you do not need to say anything about what God has done for you, but you may make confession of faith by simply saying what God has done. And then you may become a member of the church. You may not come to the Lord's table, but you may be a member of the church simply by confessing what God has done for us. And the background of that history was that allegedly there were sensitive people in the Netherlands who were not able to come to conviction that they were God's people. They had doubts and fears. And when they were asked, did God pay for your sins? They would say, I don't know. I'm not sure. Does Christ love you? And the response was the same. I don't know. I'm not sure. And because of, I suppose, and this is the history, you may read it, a desire not to hurt sensitive people. They were allowed to make confession of their faith without being able to say, Christ died for me, and I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And if there's ever a confession of faith in a consistory room that allows that, then you must object to that very, very quickly. When the elders and the minister ask young people, questions in confession of faith it ought not be a simple requirement to recite answers to objective questions define election and total depravity regeneration and grace that's included but confession of faith is not confession of faith until the elders ask the young person did Christ die for you do you believe in him and do you trust him? And when they make confession of faith in the congregation, they must be able to stand here and say, yes. And when they say yes, they mean yes to that question. Do you belong to Jesus? What's faith? What's faith that you're going to confess? Now don't think of the first question of the catechism, Heidelberg Catechism, but jump up to the Lord's Day 7 and question and answer 21 and 22 where it asks, what's faith? 
And you learned, all of you who've been through catechism, that faith is not only a certain knowledge of all that God has revealed to us in his word, but is also an assured confidence. And this is what faith is a confidence of, that not only to others, but to me also, is freely given only for the sake of Christ's merits, righteousness, and salvation. That's faith. Faith confesses certainty. What a good God we have. Now, you and I must be able to make that confession, not from the pulpit, and though I've used that word preach in a loose sense, that's not the word to use to describe what we're doing here when we gather the God-fears together and say, I'd like to give you my testimony. That's the wrong word to use because preaching is reserved for this pulpit and the catechism room. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why the church in the past has objected to personal testimonies, exactly because they began to supplant the preaching. And in some churches, the morning service was reserved for preaching, and in the evening, they said to the minister, you sit down, and we're going to allow the people of God to come and give their testimony. And Reformed people realized that that's not what we are called to do. Public worship is reserved for the officially ordained, trained men to teach and preach. And then another reason these personal testimonies were rejected is that if your story wasn't better than the story that preceded yours, you weren't going to tell it. But if you had a really exciting story, probably you'd be willing to get up and do it. And then in the third place, probably the story that was permitted was only a story such that one day I was an unbeliever, the next day I became a Christian because God came to me in a dramatic Saul to Paul-like way and made me a Christian. I heard a story like that the other day in the gym. A man who could hardly move because his neck was stiff. I happened to ask him what his problem was and to make a long story short, he told me his story of how one day he was not a Christian and the next day was and that day was when he was 15 years old dying of cancer in the hospital in Grand Rapids that was some 50, 60 years ago. His parents were not believers, he was not a Christian. They were cruel so that they wouldn't even pay for a television in his room. Nobody came to visit him. All he could do is look around in the room and finally in a drawer find a Gideon Bible that he opened up and though he knew nothing about what Christianity was, he read it. And he read it again and he read it again and he said, God used that to bring me to faith. And now my mission, now my mission, he looked 80, he said he was 63, now my mission is to go everywhere and tell people what God did for me. That's a marvelous story, but most of us don't have stories like that. Most of us don't have stories like that. We need to make this confession of what God has done for us to unbelievers. That's uh, not to unbelievers, but to believers. Now, there is a place for that confession. 
But notice that's not what David is doing. He didn't send an invitation south to the Egyptians, east and west to the Moabites and the Philistines, north to the Syrians and say, come together all you who don't know God and I'm going to tell you about my God, though there is, I say, a place for that. That's why Jesus said, let your light shine before men. That's why the prayer this morning was what it was. Paul picked up on that and said, when you live, make sure you're facing outside and thinking about the people who aren't members of the church. Walk in wisdom toward them. And Peter picked that up when he said, be ready to give an answer to them as to why you live the way you do and express the hope that's in you. Be ready to do that. We need to make that confession by our deeds and by our words, what God has done for us. And we need to look for opportunities so that it's not other Christians speaking to us, but it's we who are speaking to others in every opportunity that we have. But this text is not that. This text is David saying to believers, when David says in verse 16, all ye that fear God, the word fear in the Hebrew is the very same word as found in verses 3 and 5 translated, yes, terrible, terrible. And we saw that in verses 3 and 5, when David said God works are terrible, it does not mean awful in the sense of bad, but so marvelous that it makes you stand with your mouth open, as it were. I can't believe what God has done. Awesome. That's the word translated here. David is speaking to the people of God who stand in awe of God, who when they hear about what God has done for others, and who know what God has done for them, say God is such an awesome God. I can't begin to explain to you in words that do justice to it what God has done for me. David says to them, to them, I want you to come because you will recognize the language I use and your own experience will match up with the experience that I have in my own life. Come, assemble around me. I want to make a personal testimony to you. And then notice a couple of things about that. Number one, David is not speaking as an office bearer so that the application of this is simply to the elders and the deacons and the minister that they're the only ones permitted to do this. David is speaking as a common member of the church saying all of you now can follow, follow my example. Notice in the second place that David is taking the initiative you don't read in the psalm that David got an invitation. Often people like that, Nate Saint and others whose parents died in South America or Central America as they're doing mission work, now he's invited all over the world to give his testimony. Well, not here. David didn't get an invitation. He is taking the opportunity to say, I want you to come to me. And then third, what David is doing here is creating an atmosphere where the people of God become comfortable listening to and not nervous about 
someone saying what God has done for them. Comfortable. Comfortable. If after church I would tell you my story, you'd probably be, probably be uncomfortable. If someone outside there in a circle of men would begin talking about what God had done for him, you'd probably be uncomfortable. I hope not, but maybe many of us would be. Why is that? And the answer to that question is that we have not trained our children many of us, to be comfortable speaking about spiritual things. And so for us to do, after church, what David did in the psalm, is not going to begin in the narthex or the fellowship hall or the parking lot. It's going to begin in our homes when dads and moms take the little ones and make the little ones comfortable hearing about what God has done for them. And dad and mom are not going to be comfortable speaking to their children until dad and mom, before they have children, are comfortable speaking to each other. And the husband says to his wife when he gets home, honey, honey, I left home in a foul mood, and I am sorry. And when I went to work, I didn't begin working. I opened the scripture and I prayed. And you know what God did to me? He changed my heart. I'm sorry. This is what God did for me. You don't need a dramatic story. You don't need to tell of a sudden conversion. You may do that, but that's going to get old pretty quickly. I've heard that story before. I've heard that story before. Please don't keep repeating yourself, Grandpa. But you can go on and on about what God has done for you. And then when husband and wife are comfortable doing that, and God gives them the little ones, and Dad goes off to work. Mom opens up the Bible with the little ones and says, not specifically, you know what God did for me last night, but simply this, God saved me from my sin and made me his, and I am so thankful. And that's why I want you to learn from the Bible. I want you to learn how to fold your little hands and pray, and I want you to trust Jesus Christ because God is so good to me in him, and I want you to know that too. And then maybe there are specific stories that dad and mom can tell to their children about what God has done for them, but here's the point. We mature Christians need to create an opportunity, not wait for an invitation, but create an opportunity speaking about what good things God has done for us so that others are comfortable to do the very same thing when they have opportunity to do it too. And when then we have done those things, then perhaps in the narthex or the fellowship hall or the parking lot, it will come as no surprise to anyone and no one will frown and maybe walk away with embarrassment about somebody speaking about what God did for them this week, they'll be eager to hear it and say, I'm glad he did that because I want to tell you what God did for me. Not now to boast. Not now to say anything about what I did. I cried to him in deep distress. I was miserable, in trouble. I couldn't help myself. This is what God did 
for me. Don't we have a great, good God? This comes before testifying outside the church. Do you dare, without being a hypocrite, talk to somebody outside of the church about what God has done, and you've never done that inside the church? Will you know even what to say to them if you've not said it to us? Let's start here. And then it won't be so difficult in the gym or at work or wherever you may be recreating to tell them what God has done for you. We have a good God, great good God, who forgives our shortcomings in this too. You look back what you've not done with your children and grandchildren, your spouse, your friends, and you say, oh, how I sinfully have been silent. And this is the goodness of God to you. He forgives that too. He forgives that. And you fear him. And that's why. That's the answer to the question, why? When I, in this last point now, for a few minutes, ask the question, why? I'm not asking the question, what are we aiming at? Although that could be a big part of a sermon on this text, because what the, what the psalmist was aiming at is this, make his praise glorious. I want you to know what God has done for us so that you can praise God. I want you to know what God has done for me so that you can praise God. And the more you learn what God has done for us, and the more you understand what God has done for me, you're going to go home and praise God. That's what we're aiming at. But what I'm interested now on this last point is asking the question, why would we? Why would we? And the answer to that question is partly because we must. There's a command here by way of David's example some commands come to us by way of a mandate, thou shalt. There are other commands that come to us by way of an example that we ought to follow. And here's one of them. David stands here as an example to us. Follow it. Gather people together. Tell them what God has done for you. You must. But that doesn't ring so much with what David is doing here, does it? Part of the explanation as to why can also be that this is the way God made us. And it's going to be just natural that we do it. And maybe you could think of perhaps children asking a deer that you saw leap over that tall fence. If that deer could talk and you could catch the deer and you ask him, deer, why do you leap? The deer would say, because that's the way God made me. That's the way he made me. And if you could ask that hawk that I saw this morning, flying and swooping and going in circles, having the time of his life, as it were, and I wonder, what was he doing up there? And if I could take him down and say, Hawk, why were you flying? He would say, 
because that's the way God made me. He made me to do that. And if you would ask a Christian, Christian, why do you witness? Why do you speak of the good things that God did for you? It's, the answer would be because God made me that. That's not my first nature. My first nature is go on exercising, go on running, go on doing everything, probably put earbuds in my ears so that nobody even asks me about anything, just focus on what I'm doing and ignore everyone else. That's my first nature. But the way God made me in my second nature is to praise Him that we should show forth His praise. That's the way God made us. But it seems to me that the best explanation of the answer to the question, why, is simply right there in the text. That David is a God-fearer. He wants other God-fearers to come and listen to what God did because he's a God-fearer. And he has experienced in his own life such a marvelous work that God did for him that he can't help but speak. He loves God. He knows what God has done. He's learned what God has done. So now consciously and willingly, intelligently and eagerly, He's able to say, God did this for me. And that's what makes me different than a deer. A deer just does it. He just does it automatically. He's a brute beast is all. The hawk just does it. He's not able to articulate to you why he flies as he does. But a child of God is intelligent and rational and moral and understands. It's not just who he is, but it's what's deep within him. God has done such good things for me. People of God, go home today. And please do not speak about why you don't speak. And repeat the old explanations. That's our Dutch culture. That's what it means to be a Reformed Christian. Don't speak about those things. Don't make excuses. Go home and speak about what great thing God has done for you. He has not turned away your prayer. He's merciful God. He's good, good, always good. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God in heaven, we thank Thee for the gospel. We're sorry for our sins, so many. We beseech Thee for pardon. Loose our tongues. Move our lips by warming, Father, our hearts with regard to what good things Thou hast done for us. We are not our own, Father. I am not my own, but I belong to Christ. Thanks be to thee. Amen. Now let's sing that psalm again.
in the next versification of it, 175. And let's sing stanzas three and four. Three and four. of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen.